doctrine of last things. Uh, the, the, the official theological word for that is eschatology. So if you want to sound very smart, um, <laughs> like you really know what you're talking about, you could say that word and use that in a sentence and people would be like, wow, this person knows what they're talking about. It's eschatology or the doctrine of last things. And it really, this, this topic answers the question of how is God going to close the curtains on world history? How is this all going to work out? Um, we're going to spend a, a little, we're going to hit some verses all over the place this morning. We're going to look at a few verses in uh, Isaiah chapter in the 40s. So you could, um, if you wanted to, to prep there, uh, a lot of it, I, I'm going to quote a lot of verses and not really like go through a whole um, portion, you, you know, so uh, I don't really have a lot of places for you to turn to, but this is one of those mornings where I really hope you have a notebook. Uh, I said it last week, I'll reiterate that again. Um, it, it's so, so critical because, and here's why, because we're, we're going to go through verses this morning and I'm going to quote verses to you that I'm not going to turn to. And if we were to turn to all these verses and look at them and you saw where they were on the page and, and underlined and highlighted, you know, it would take us four hours to go through the stuff. And so to have a notebook, to be able to write the things down, um, or somewhere where you can write some of these verses down and connect it with a thought so that later you can go back and, uh, and reference it. It's kind of a priceless thing, especially in a study like this. Now, right at the onset of this, breaking into this topic, I want to say this. Um, you can use your mind, or your mind can use this study to shape your belief, or your beliefs, or... You can use your belief to shape your life. And what I mean by that is that there's two different ways to approach a study of Bible prophecy. The first is the curious. And the curious method is when you have an intrigue into these things because of how it maybe um, allures to the desire to know. You know, have inside information to see, well, what does God have to say about things to come? And could there be some credence, some credibility to it? Or is it possible even to understand the things that have been put? And that's more like a, a curious approach. I'm curious about what, you know, the Bible has to say about these things. And if that's your approach when you come to this topic, you'll, you'll hear, you'll understand, you'll be excited. But what will happen is... A month or two after we're done with this, it'll kind of fade off the screen, it'll go into the background, and it'll just become, you know, information in a file in your mind, something that you know, but that doesn't really affect your life and the way that you live. The other approach to this is the serious approach. I'm not just curious about what the Bible says, but I believe that the Bible does say the things that are yet to come. And I believe that God intends for me to know these things and that I can understand them. It isn't a mystery. It isn't for the super intellectual. It isn't for the hyper intelligent or the overly spiritual, but that God put these things here so that I would know them because he wants it to affect the way I live. And that's a whole different thing than just being curious about what it says. If God tells us something in his word, he tells us for a reason. It isn't just to tickle our intellect or, or, or to, you know, make us feel good about knowing something. It's because it means something to how we live our lives in the meantime. 
And so he tells us on purpose. And if that's our approach, how, knowing how it's going to affect our life, well, then we'll, we'll give ourselves to understanding these things. We will take notes. We'll search the scriptures to see, you know, how these things uh, fit together. And, and it'll ultimately end us on our knees asking God, Lord, how do you want this to change me? How do you want this to affect my life? What do I do with the things that you're saying? There's a whole group of people in, in the church, and not just our church, but the church, you know, universal, that just completely ignore this topic because they say it's too hard to understand. And I understand that, that, that mindset because, you know, there, there isn't a little segment of the Bible that you can open to and it just says, well, this is going to answer every question you have and give you perfect understanding. It takes a little bit of uh, tying scripture together. It takes a little bit of understanding uh, timelines, some history, and, you know, all that kind of stuff to, to do it together, to put it together, you know, and it can be a little bit, not tedious, but it takes some effort, you know, to understand it. Um, but to say that I'm not going to study it because I don't know if I can understand it is to just forfeit everything that will benefit and bless you from understanding it and from knowing it. There's a, three things that Paul said don't be ignorant of. You know, I mean, the Apostle Paul, there was three things. One uh, was, was the, the, the place of Israel. The other was the second was the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the third was the end times events. He said, don't be ignorant about these things. You know, and so God doesn't want us to be ignorant about it. He wants us to understand um, and, and he, he wants us to, to, for our lives. So what does this do? What does it do? What does an understanding of Bible prophecy or the end time scenario, what does that do for our lives presently right now where we are? If we were a thousand years from the second coming of Christ, which I don't think we are, and I don't think you'll think that either. Uh, you might not already, but you definitely won't by the end of this. But if it was a thousand years away, what would understanding these things do for us now? Well, first of all, very practically, is that it helps you live your life with perspective. Helps you to live with perspective. Knowledge of prophecy is a lot like the clock tower of the kingdom of God. How many times a day and for how many things do we consult the clock? I don't know about you, <laughs> but I live by the clock. I look at the clock more than anything else. I think about time probably more than a lot of other things because time affects the way that we make decisions. We make decisions about what we're going to do in an evening based upon what day of the week it is. How is this going to affect the latter part of the week if I try to squeeze this in now? We do that for duties during the day. Well, what time of the day is it for me to get, in, should I get involved in this project now or give myself to this now? If I do, what's that going to do to my evening or, you know, my punching out time or whatever it is, you know? We, if you were a coach, you know, you think about how to uh, plan for the, the game, like making a game plan. Well, what time, how much time is left on the clock? And we use time as a factor in most of the decisions that we make. Well, when you bring that into the main thing in our lives, which is to seek first the kingdom of God, then the knowledge of what God is doing in the world and where we are on his clock makes a difference in how we live our lives and the perspective that we have and in the plans that we make. And so understanding this 
helps us to have perspective for our lives. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, and that's a verse that you can look down. I hope that you'll look it up later and really meditate on that verse and what it says. It says this, and it's talking about the mighty men of David during his kingdom time. It says that the sons of Issachar were men that had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. He had a whole group of people that were his mighty men, that their whole job was just to understand the times. Why? For perspective. So that they could make wise decisions uh, and he, they could consult David and let him know those things. And we're to have that as part of our perspective as we walk with the Lord. The second thing that a study of prophecy does for us, gives to us, is that it provides, it gives to us hope and purity. The more that you understand about what God says is coming upon the earth, and then you connect it to what you're watching happen in the world around you, the more you realize how real it is. You say, wow, Lord, this is real. What you said is real. You weren't abstract in your explanation of these things, but you were perfectly clear and you know exactly what's coming. And as you do that, you realize the reality of it. It causes you to trust the Lord more for all things. And it produces a hope, not just a hope of, hey, Lord, you're coming and we're going to get out of here. But it causes you to hope in all of the other promises that he gives as well. Is that if he's this clear about things that are yet to come that we don't understand, and yet he says that he knows the very number of the hairs that are on my head and that my times are all in his hands, then he must be in control of those things too. And there's a hope that is built up. In fact, that's what Paul said a study of prophecy would uh, produce in us. In Titus chapter 2, and I'll read these verses, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 uh, through 14, Paul says this. He says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us, the grace teaches us, that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that we, or that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works." He calls the second coming, the doctrine of the second coming, our blessed hope as we wait for him to come. And so it provides hope. It also provides purity. Because as we walk with him and as we realize, you know, what's coming and that he's coming, it causes us to live our lives in a certain way. Like Peter wrote and he said, if these things be, then how should we then live? John, the apostle, says it this way in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. He says, Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, that is when he comes, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure is that when you realize the reality that he is coming and that there is an eternal destiny for us, 
that that produces in us a sense of purity, a need for purity, a desire for purity, because he's coming. And I don't want to be found defiled when he comes. And so it provides that hope and purity. I can say for me personally, the study of prophecy has uh, had a profound effect upon me. When I first got saved, I, I had been brought up as a Catholic. And when I got saved, I was nothing. I wasn't going to Catholic church. And I'm not saying that because I was Catholic, I wasn't, you know, th- that was me. I, I was not saved because I wasn't. I was a godless man. But when I did come to the Lord, and that's another story for another time. Early on, I was walking through a Christian bookstore And there was a book on the shelf called End Times Events. And the title intrigued me. I thought, whoa, what's that? You know, that looks cool. And so I I picked it up. I'd never been taught anything about it. I mean, obviously, I knew the stories. You know, I knew kind of the concepts from going to Catholic school and being brought up in Catholic church. But I never heard anything about the end times as something that is real. It was just, no, well, he did it by the flood the first time. It'll be by fire the second time. And that was as far as it went. And so I thought, well, here's a whole book on the subject. So I got the book and I began to read it. And as I read it, the things in it made sense. I didn't understand, obviously, clearly. And I don't even know if the author of that book had everything right. I I don't even know. All I knew is that from reading that book, it sparked something. It turned on a light inside of me that, hey, these things can be known. That's coming right out of the Bible, that God's telling us something. And so it caused me to want to search, to want to understand, to want to see what these things were. And as I did that, I got excited to realize, wow, God, you, you tell us these things that, that are, that, you know, that are going to happen. And it made me want to know more. What's the rapture? What is the tribulation? What's the deal with the book of Revelation? And as I searched those things, God began to knit the facts together and put the picture in my mind to understand what was happening. And that made me excited just to be able to know that he's told us these things. But here's what it did, is that it caused me to search the scriptures in all things. It made me fall in love with the word of God. Because as I discovered that concept, it made me see all the other concepts, all the other things. And my love for the word was birthed out of a desire to just understand what God already said. And so it had a a profound effect upon uh, me, and I believe that it, it will upon anyone who studies it. So it's a profitable study for us. It's good for us, especially in these days. So what I want to do is I want to lay out for you exactly what God's plan is. What is he going to do? So the first thing that we want to understand in this is the cast of characters. Who are the players in this drama, if you would, of God's uh, work, God's play? What, what, who, who, who are they? Well, the first, if you're taking notes, and the first, it'll be the first of uh, uh, six this morning. The first is the sovereign God. Obviously, it's his plan. He has a part to play in it. There are a group of, we'll call them deists. Those that believe in God, but not necessarily the Christian God or the God of the Bible. But basically, they are those that can't put a name to him or, or, or won't commit to a definition, but they don't believe that we're here just because of a big bang. They don't believe that this is just an evolutionary accident, you know, all of us here on this planet. They believe in something. But for the most part, they are 
you, you know, they believe basically that, that there is a form of evolution, that, that no, a big bang doesn't just happen out of nothing, but there's a, there's a deity somewhere that created something and maybe there was a bang. God made it, he started it, but now he's just a distant observer. He's not involved. He's just watching to see what's going to happen. And he doesn't really know how it's all going to play out. This is just one big celestial experiment. What's going to happen with this creation? We're in the fishbowl of someone's scientific lab, and he's just watching to see what's going to happen. But he doesn't really know. That's not what the Bible teaches at all. In Isaiah chapter 41, verse 4, Notice what the Lord says through the prophet. He says, who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first and with the last, I am he. He declares and proposes that he is sovereign from the beginning to the end, that he's over it. And that he knows what's going on. He takes it a step further in chapter 46. Just turn a couple of pages to Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9. He goes further here in his claim of knowledge. And he says, remember the former things of old. That is the things that have already passed. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me declaring the end from the beginning. Did you hear that? Declaring the end from the beginning, meaning that he's standing at the beginning and from there, he's declaring the end. He already knows how it's all gonna play out from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. And so God says, I know what's going to happen before it ever happens. And in Acts chapter 15, verse 18, it says of God, it says, known by God are all his works from the beginning of the creation. That he is fully aware of how everything is going to play out and go down before any of it comes to pass at all. History is his story. It's a great way to look at that word. When you see the word history, just break it apart. History is his story. It's all in his hands. None of it's happened apart from his knowledge. None of it's happened, you know, kind of on its own, separate from his hand, but he's over every aspect of it. All kingdoms, all domains, in all times, and all things are his. They serve his purposes and they exist for his will. Whether it's Egypt or ancient Babylon, or Persia, or the Grecian Empire, or then to Rome, and even into the modern era. All things have been directed by his hand that have happened on this planet, and he's over them all. In Daniel chapter 4, and again, you can, if you're quick, you can turn, or you could just jot it down, but Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. The story is when Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of Babylon, the most powerful empire in the world in the time, when Nebuchadnezzar was vainly thinking that he was sovereign, that he was in control, that he really was on top of the world running the show. And God wanted to teach Nebuchadnezzar a lesson. And so God was going to show him. And Nebuchadnezzar had a dream that he couldn't figure out about a tree that would be cut down. 
and he needed a little help interpreting, so he calls for Daniel. And in the dream, he sees an angel, and the angel speaks these words to King Nebuchadnezzar. It's Daniel 4, 17. It says, this decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones. Why? In order that the living may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and he gives it to whomever he will and sets over it the lowest of men. Nebuchadnezzar, you need to learn that you're not in control of all things. That you're not the one who's built this great Babylon and orchestrated these great victories. God is over all the kingdoms then, and he gives it to whoever he wants. He put you in this place, and you are the lowest of men. Now, he defied that decree, and he went walking in the gardens, and he said, is not this great Babylon that I have built by the power of my hand and for the glory of my name, is not this my great Babylon? And in that moment, the vision came to pass. And at the end of the matter, Nebuchadnezzar concedes and he says, he gives it to whoever he will, the most high rules in the kingdoms of men. In verse 35 of the same chapter, it says, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now, the amazing thing about that is that that was spoken by Nebuchadnezzar after the fact is that he realized that God was in control. He was sovereign over the affairs of men, over the kingdoms of this world. And here's the point. This world, from the very beginning, started on a course. It was planned out by God, and it has an ultimate destination. It's heading somewhere, and he knows what that destination is and exactly how it's going to play out. And the good news is that he's laid all of it out for us in scripture so that we might understand. So it's his plan that makes him the lead character in the story because he's the sovereign God. Character number two is Israel. When Abraham responded to the call of God, God made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would become a great nation. Ultimately, in time, God gave him Isaac Isaac gave birth to Jacob in time. And Jacob, in pretty much no time at all, had 12 kids, 12 sons. And those 12 sons became the fathers of the 12 tribes of Israel. And they did become a great nation. God multiplied them even as he declared and said uh, that he would. God had told Abraham that his nation that he would build would be a great blessing to all the nations on the earth. And God fulfilled his word. Now, the purpose for God calling Abraham and giving him that nation was twofold. First of all, God was building an agent, a presence, a body, if you would, a presence that would bring forth the truth. The prophets came from Israel. The history of Israel, all of that pointed to the existence, the ways, and the truths of God. All of those things were given to us through the existence of Israel. God wanted the truth to be known. And so he raised up a nation that would be a stage for that truth to be presented. And it was. We have the Old Testament scriptures and really the New Testament scriptures built upon the foundation of Israel's existence. And so God wanted truth to be made known. The second reason God made that nation was to bring forth a savior. That was the blessing 
that he spoke to Abraham about when he said that in you, that is in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through the Messiah that will come from you. The Savior of the world would come from the nation of Israel, and that was what God wanted. That was his reason. Now, in Revelation chapter 12, the nation of Israel is pictured as a woman who is clothed with the sun, has the moon under her feet, and a crown on her head of 12 stars. It's Israel in spiritual picture, uh, you know, picture that's given there in Revelation chapter 12. And it says that she brought forth a son who would rule all nations with a rod of iron. And that's exactly what Israel was intended to do. It's a clear picture of Israel. And if you're putting these characters in place in your mind as it you know, concerns this whole scenario, then you can look at Israel in that way. A woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and 12 stars on her head, uh, who's going to bring forth a son who will rule all nations with a God, or, I'm sorry, with a rod of iron. And so Israel is a character in this, this story, a huge part to play, uh, we'll see as it unfolds. Now, God has covenantal obligations to Israel. Many of them are yet to be fulfilled. And so Israel is not finished with her part. Though she's given us the truth, though she's given us her son, who, you know, is our Messiah, our Savior, Jesus, who came from Israel, God still has things yet to do with Israel. And so Israel is a player in the prophetic scheme. So she's a character in the story. They become an important player. Character number three is the son, the son that she gives forth. Of course, we know that that's Jesus, the Messiah, our Savior. He's the one that came the first time, and he's the one that's coming the second time. So an important player in the scenes of how this is all going to play out. Now, this brings up an interesting and important question that needs to be asked and addressed at this point, and that's this. What's the point of the whole program? Why? Why did God set a plan in motion from the beginning? Why did he create the heavens and the earth? Why did he put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden at all, knowing that man would fall? If known by God are all his works from the beginning, then that means God knew that Adam would sin and that all the results of sin would play out after that. So why? Why bother? All the destruction, all the death, all the drama, what's the point? Here's the point. Here's the reason why. Well, and again, we can't answer perfectly, fully, because you would have to be God to know, you know, his motivations and why. But this is what we do know, absolutely. That God wanted to create a being in his image and likeness. That's you and I, that's man. That he would be able to share his glory and his love with eternally. God wanted to do that. And two things are necessary for that. First of all, that creation that he wants to share his love and glory with has to have a choice. And that, that, that's this. If God wanted to reveal his love, then he would have to create something that had free moral agency. Because in order for you to have love, you must have a choice. Forced love is rape. And if we loved God only because we were forced to, 
or because he turned on a switch inside of us as he made us that made us love him, then it wouldn't be real love. Love demands choice. It's the very nature of love. We're not robots programmed to say, I love you, God. I want to serve you. But we are called to respond to the love that he gives with reciprocated love. And that demands a choice that we have. So we have to have a choice. That's why God had to put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden to begin with. Because if Adam didn't have a choice, then he would, God would be his affection by default. It would be all that there was. And so there had to be a choice. And it's the same choice that all of us have, that every man that will ultimately be redeemed by God will have that choice of do we love God or do we reject God? We have to have that choice. The second thing that you need, you absolutely have to need for God's plan and answers the question of why, is that you have to have a platform for revealing his love. In other words, the Bible says that God's love is revealed to us through the death of his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. God made known his love by his willingness to send his son, who was an extension of himself, three, three persons, yet one God. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself by coming into this world and paying the price to redeem man from his fallen state. That was how God revealed his love. And apart from that action, no one in heaven or ever in eternity would ever know the depths of God's love. It was demonstrated and manifested through that action. And in order for him to demonstrate it, he had to produce the circumstances of darkness for that light to shine into. Do you understand? And so that's the reason why, at least in part, is that God wants to share his glory and his love with something that he created that has the choice to love him back. And in order to do that, we had to have that choice and there had to be the revelation of that love through the cross. So the son plays a huge part in this whole thing. He came the first time, he comes the second time. Character number four is the church. The Greek word for the church is ekklesia. And it means this. It means the called out ones. We've been called out of the world, the fallen world, and separated, sanctified, cleansed, redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And if you are redeemed, saved, born again, blood-bought, you can call it whatever you want, then you are a member of the church, at least in this era right now because we're in the church age. As a personified body, the church is called the bride of Christ. So if Israel is depicted as the woman clothed with the son, the son, of course, is the son, the father is the father, the church is the bride of Christ. Ephesians chapter five, Paul's speaking about marriage. He talks about you know, marriage and then he says, I'm speaking of a great mystery, but he says, I'm speaking of Christ and the church. Jesus referred to his bride-to-be as the church. Paul said the church represents the bride. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17 says, the spirit and the bride say come, that's us. And so throughout the New Testament, the church, if you were to personify it as a single body, a single person, 
They play the part of the bride of Jesus Christ. Now there's an important, a couple of important things concerning the church that we've got to understand. Number one is that the church is not Israel. Neither is the church an extension of Israel. The church is completely separate. It's a totally different person altogether. In Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus was at Caesarea Philippi, and he asked his disciples and he said, who do men say that I am? They gave their answers. Some said, you're Jeremiah, some Elijah, some Moses, some that, you know, they gave all their answers. And then he said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus' response was, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who's in heaven revealed this to you. And then he said this, listen carefully. He said, upon this rock, I will build my church. Now the rock was not Peter, as some have supposed. The rock was on Peter's statement that you are the Christ. That that's the rock, the foundation upon which the church is built. That's what Paul said. Other foundation can no man lay but that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's the foundation, his lordship. But he said, upon that rock, I will build my church. And here's the point, is that that building was something that didn't yet exist. He said, I will build it and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It didn't exist even during the ministry of Christ. There was no church. The church was not born until the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come and the Spirit came and 3,000 souls were added to the church, church born on the day that the Spirit came. The church has a definite beginning and the church has a definite ending. A little fast forward, but the church ends at the rapture. So there's a period of time that is called the church age wherein the church is built. The church is made up not just of Jews, but the church is made up of all. The church is made up of the whosoevers. When it says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would call upon him. That's who the church is made up of. And Paul said that. He said it's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female, bond, Scythian, all are one in Jesus Christ. That's the church. And so those that come to him, those that receive him in this time now, they are the church. Now, Jesus made clear distinction between Israel and the church. He said in uh, Matthew, and you want to write these verses down, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 13, Jesus said, for all the law and the prophets prophesied until John. And he's speaking of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the last of the prophets. He ended, if you would, the reign or the season of Israel's spiritual existence upon the earth. All the law and the prophets prophesied until John. And then he said, he that is least in the kingdom is greater than he. And he spoke of John as being the greatest. Now, John the Baptist referred to himself in John chapter 3, verse 29, as the friend of the bridegroom. In other words, he said, I am not the bride, John said, who was the last of the Old Testament prophets. I am not the bride. I am the friend of the bridegroom, and I rejoice to see his day, what he's doing. 
So John separated himself from identifying with the bride. John the Baptist was part of Israel, an extension of Israel. The church is the bride. We are different. So there's a distinction. The church is not Israel. It doesn't replace Israel. It's separate altogether. A different body, a, a, another player in the whole scheme of God's plan upon the earth. Now, it is a great privilege to be a part of the church. I do not think that we even understand how huge it is that we are a part of the church of Jesus Christ. Think about it for a minute. In all of the realms of heaven, the ranks of the angels, the size and scope of all that he is, what's outside of our universe? If our universe spans his hand, the Bible says, and it's immeasurable by any standard that we have, and unknowable, unsearchable, then how big is God's kingdom? What are the hosts of heaven? How does all that work? Who are we? We're the bride of the Son of God. What does that mean? It means that we are elevated to the highest position, to the highest honor that exists in all of the highest kingdom of the world, even beyond Israel. That's amazing. It's an incredible, incredible privilege and place that we occupy. We are in Christ. We're one with Jesus Christ. Think about that. That's amazing. It's also scary. Not, not for us, but for someone who would say, well, I'll get saved after the rapture. If I see the church go, then I'll make a decision to follow Christ. You can do that, but you miss out because you're not the bride. Revelation is clear. We'll get there perhaps, not this morning, of course, but they serve him, but they're not the bride. We have an incredible privilege to be a part of the church. Player number five is the adversary. You can't have a drama. You can't have a story without a villain, can you? <laughs> the villain is Satan himself. Now, we did last spring a whole what, five or six weeks looking at Satan and his doctrine. And I would refer you to that as far as really getting into his mind and understanding why he does what he does and why he is who he is. But I'll say this this morning, is that Satan hates the church and he hates God. And his desire to wipe out men is because they've been created in the image of God and they are loved by God. And anything that God loves, Satan hates. He's also envious of man because of the position that we have and the potential that we have being made in the image of God and experiencing fellowship and ruling and reigning with him. We occupy a position that he greatly coveted. And so he's made it his mission to destroy and to sabotage that which God has blessed, called and redeemed. And so he is the great villain in, in the thing and his manifestation of such in God's plan is through character number six, and that is the Antichrist. Character number six is the Antichrist. A coming one world ruler who will preside over a global government, he'll receive his power directly from Satan, he'll win the trust and favor of the entire world, which will take some serious supernatural power, including Israel, 
who will receive him as their Christ, as their savior that they're awaiting. He'll usher in global unity, a global currency, and a global ideology, and a false world peace. And he'll have power to supernaturally deceive. He's also called in scripture the man of sin, the son of perdition, the wicked one. And he'll have an assistant during his reign that's called the false prophet who has power to do miraculous things that will deceive those that look on and observe. And his reign will be the final seven years of this world as we know it. The final seven years of man's rule, man, the day of man. It's also called the day of the Lord. The final seven years he will reign and rule and have his position and his uh, authority. And so an important player in the grand scheme of how all things work out. So there's your cast of characters in this great drama. You have the sovereign God. You have Israel. You have the church. Did I miss one? No, I said the son. Didn't I say the son? All right. Israel, the son, the, you know, then you have the church, then you have the adversary, Satan, and then you have the Antichrist. All of those have a part to play. And it helps us to understand who they are as we go forward now and look at how it's all going to play out. Declaring the end from the beginning, God says. I can tell you how it's all going to play out. And he has. These are the players. Next week, we'll look at how the scene uh, will play out as we go on with this.